Okay, so good afternoon. Um, so it's a great delight that I, I've been asked to introduce Professor John Leonard. So John is over from MIT. He's a professor of um, mechanical and ocean engineering at MIT. Um, John is a huge name in probabilistic robotics and in particular in an area known as simultaneous localization and mapping, which uh, I'm sure he'll talk about uh, during his talk. Um, so. I suppose to get a sense of the contribution that John has made, I think it's almost difficult to find a paper in SLAM these days that doesn't have John in the references somewhere. Um, he's done a lot of work in both uh, marine robotics and terrestrial and uh, more lately in handheld SLAM uh, systems and uh, I won't go on too much longer but I suppose there is going to be a slight contrast with this talk in that I think he's going to talk about a robot that has 40 cores and uh, uh, considerably <laughs> more uh, processing power so thanks for very much, John. Thanks, John. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I've come many times now to Ireland. My wife is from Ireland. She's from Condalkin, just, at, just part of Dublin. And, uh, but I've um, really um, uh, delighted to be here. So in my talk, I, I sort of wish I had two hours, uh, you know, because I'd love to give like a good talk on SLAM and then tell you about our DARPA challenge project. So as a compromise, I'm going to try to do the two hours in one hour. I promise to be respectful of the time limits and end on time. But uh, Please let me know if you have any questions, and I definitely want it to be sort of informal and interactive if possible. So I'll give uh, some brief introductory comments. I'll say a little bit about SLAM, and then I'll tell you about our 2007 entry in the DARPA Urban Challenge from MIT. Um, so my background, I, I um, grew up in Philadelphia, and I went to uh, uh, undergrad double E, and then I had the chance to go to England for my PhD, and, and I worked for a guy named Hugh Dorrant White, who uh, is now in, in Australia. And, the, uh, was really fortunate to get involved in sort of the ground floor of some of the robot navigation and mapping sorts of things. And then, uh, but I couldn't find a job in 1991 when I went back to the States. And so I got a job working for an underwater vehicle lab. And so I became a postdoc in a lab that developed a vehicle called the Odyssey. Up here on the, on the left is a sort of uh, a later generation of the Odyssey vehicle. And uh, then joined the faculty in ocean engineering. We merged with mechanical engineering. Uh, then joined the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, which merged with another lab to make CSAIL. And uh, one of the occupational hazards as you sort of get older in academia is I a lot more admin responsibilities. I co-direct the Ford MIT Alliance, which is something that came out of the DARPA challenge. Uh, but I'm also involved in the admin of some of the ocean side of things. And uh, do a lot of work on SLAM and multiple vehicles and, and various sorts of issues. And one reason I show this is just for those of you that are uh, postgraduates, to really encourage you that an academic career really is very rewarding. You, you, your, your career, you don't know exactly what path it's going to take, but you get to interact with lots of great people. And I've been so fortunate to have just amazing collaborators at MIT uh, to work with and, uh, and elsewhere. So um, a lot of my work is about autonomous underwater vehicles. Uh, and I know like Dan Toll and a few of his guys are here from, from Limerick. There's some uh, underwater robotics work here in Ireland. And it's an important application domain for things like security and also for, for industry, say the offshore oil industry. It's also a, a challenging domain in which to try some of the advanced robot capabilities. In fact, when I was a postdoc, everyone thought GPS would sort of solve the robot localization problem. And so because GPS didn't work, doesn't work underwater, I sort of had an excuse to keep working on some of these uh, problems through the 90s. And um, so these are some of the robots we've used uh, in, our, in our projects. Um, now, uh, I also was the team leader for the DARPA Urban Challenge team that MIT had in 2007. And uh, so who's here familiar with the DARPA Grand Challenge, DARPA Urban Challenge? So this was the third in a sequence of challenges. We, we didn't compete in the first two. Uh, and we, uh, it's a very, there's similarities with the RoboCup sort of thing, but also, also some, some great differences. And uh, if you, for me, I was giving some retrospective talks on our DARPA team, sort of 2007, 2008, uh, 2009, and then sort of that went kind of quiet, but at least in, in the autonomous vehicle world, Google made a pretty big splash in October of last year. Has anyone seen this back in the New York Times in October that they were secretly developing an autonomous self-driving car project? And so this was, there was actually two articles in the New York Times that day. One was sort of the front page article. Uh, I don't know the true story. I heard competing versions. Uh, one is that there's a group in Germany uh, that um, has, was just announcing their project on sort of the same day, and Google didn't want to be scooped. 
Another is, that the New York, another is that the New York Times reporter had been snooping and following them around and said, look, we're going to do an expose. Do you want to cooperate or not cooperate? But there was actually um, a second. Uh, so, so Google's cars, they use this uh, Velodyne laser scanner on top of the roof. It's an amazing sensor. We had one in our vehicle. It cost $75,000, unfortunately. They also, um, it seems they have an Aplanix inertial GPS nav system, which is another $100,000. And, uh, you know, you can debate about the uh, ethics and the, even the legality of what they're doing. I mean, they're, they're great friends, Sebastian Thrun, Wolfram Burgard, but I wouldn't let our robot car go on the streets with the unsuspecting public. And in fact, I, I flew over Friday night when I landed Saturday morning at, um, uh, at the airport here and turned on my Blackberry to see if it works. And there was an email from one of my guys. There was an article that just came out of a, a, a web log entry that Google were in an accident is nothing too bad, like a fender bender from behind. And, and so uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. But there was actually two articles that day in the New York Times. And the second one was a little bit more detailed about the technology. And they interviewed Chris Urmson, who uh, was the team leader for the Carnegie Mellon team, which won the DARPA Urban Challenge. And they were trying to talk about the technology they use. And this is a paragraph in the article, which basically one main, main technique used by the Google team is known as SLAM, uh, which builds and updates a map of the vehicle surroundings while keeping the vehicle located within the map. Now, they're not strictly doing SLAM because they have a prior map and they make the map in advance and do some sort of SLAM techniques to make, and they're really relying on the prior map to servo and drive the vehicle around. And so one of the questions in autonomous robotics is how much prior information do you have? Does your system, is it sort of bootstrapped with almost nothing and it has to learn as it goes or does it, is it sort of preloaded with lots of a priori information? And then if that information is not correct, what are the consequences, you know, and how do we... Uh, but for me, this is really exciting because I, like, in my thesis, I wasn't certainly the first to attempt SLAM, or, but um, I called it simultaneous mapping and localization, which if you make an acronym is SMAL, is small. And after I left Oxford, um, Hugh had a couple, um, I, I think it's fair to say, a bit arrogant students, uh, Simon Julia, Jeff Ullman, who invented the unscented Kalman filter, and they said small is a terrible name for an acronym of the most important problem that they felt in robotics. And so they switched the orders to make it SLAM, S-L-A-M, uh, to have a more powerful acronym. Um, but I called up my mother and I said, Mom, SLAM's in the New York Times today. You know, like that's like, to see that, that this is actually out there changing the world is pretty exciting. Um, now, so three, four years ago, the DARPA challenge, three and a half, almost four years ago, seems a bit ancient history now. But I think in the context of the self-driving cars, and other things, it's interesting to, to look back and think about it. So, so what I'm going to do in this, in this talk is to say a bit about SLAM. And I, I kind of, I wanted to put a lot of the math in, but I felt on time limits I shouldn't. But I can certainly point you to places where you can get a lot more information about it if you're interested. And feel free to email me. Um, and then I'm going to, so a little bit on SLAM and then, and then the DARPA challenge, a quick review. So <clears throat> in SLAM, we have... The goal is if you started a robot with no prior map and the robot moves around the world, taking observations produced by sensors, like cameras, laser scanners, sonars, and it also has its own internal sensors, so proprioceptive sensors, things, the inertial measurement units, so, you know, odometry, wheel encoders, and these are gathered as the robot travels through some environment. And what we'd like to do is to have a geometric and topological representation of the environment, a map. An estimate of the robot's position, uh, it's, it's um, you know, uh, six degree of freedom ideally, you know, X, Y, Z and, and, and the angles, and then error bounds on the, on the map features and on the robot's estimate. And so from that you can define SLAM as from an arbitrary starting point, giving no a priori information, construct a map and localize within the map simultaneously online. And just uh, as an illustration, uh, this is uh, actually from the, my, uh, there's a research scientist in my group, Michael Case, who uh, did his PhD at Georgia Tech. And, this is a little snippet of a famous SLAM data set. It's Victoria Park in Sydney. It's just a, car, a pickup truck with a, a laser scanner on it driving around some trees. And it sort of defines the, the, the things we have in the problem. So you can do SLAM with or without landmarks. But let's say that there are some landmarks. These are the trees shown in green. Uh, there's the trajectory of the robot that you're estimating from the SLAM algorithm in red. If you just used odometry, the wheel encoders, you'd get the trajectory in blue. And then you get these measurements. And a key thing is that the measurements are all relative. So, so you measure relative range and bearing and, uh, or you know, distance to objects. And so if you, if you look at the odometry trajectory, 
So the robot here, it's, it's, this is a, a small sip, snippet where the robot starts and ends in the same place. And the odometry has drift, so you have the accumulation of error. I mean, something that was very clear from the talk this morning, one of the big challenges, saying RoboCub is dealing with uncertainty, uncertainty in your calibration, uncertainty in, in, the, in, the, in the resolution of the sensors. And uh, really, it's, it's coping with uncertainty that makes this problem interesting and challenging. So, uh, and if we, if we had time for the math, what we would do is define this as a probabilistic graphical model, where we could define the knowns and the unknowns and think about how we could do. So the sort of current modern methods for SLAM would, would try to take insights from probabilistic graphical models and sort of system, sort of state space, sort of system theory, and put it together to develop efficient estimators to, to try to estimate what you want is the, the trajectory of the vehicle and the location of the landmarks. So some illustrations now. So at MIT, so they say that MIT, some of my older colleagues at MIT, people like Rodney Brooks, who's, who's left MIT to form his second company, Heartland Robotics, would say faculty members should work on one problem for about six or seven years, and then they should switch and do something totally different. And they shouldn't be just like doing the same thing their whole career. I'm sort of the, a failure then, because I've been doing the same thing my whole career. I just sort of, this, at least so far, I think the slam problem is something that just, still keeps giving challenges. And you might ask, well, is there a lot more work for us to do? And, and sort of a, it's a good question. It's a good discussion to have. But I, uh, what I'd love to do is to show up here with just a camera and walk around the campus and make a map and just have it sort of paint out in real time and then be able to use that map, say, to guide a robot, a small, cheap robot, to navigate through the world. So, so we've had various incarnations of SLAM over the years. And uh, they may seem kind of similar, and, it, and, and I know that some of my non-SLAM colleagues in, in uh, say, Daniela Roos at MIT, back in 2004, she, she said to me, there are 60 papers on SLAM at ICRA. ICRA is the International Conference. How can there be 60 papers on SLAM? You know? And so if you're watching from the sidelines, it may look like just this huge wave happened over the last 10 years, and now maybe the wave is subsiding a little bit. And maybe things are sort of overhyped a bit. But there is some fundamentals there in terms of uh, dealing with uncertainty and perception that I think are important to deal with. So here's just, just an example. This is a laser scan from a sick laser scanner. This is a robot, um, uh, just a wheeled B21 mobile robot. This is an example of driving around the third floor of our building, this data center in Seasale. It's actually from seven years ago. And uh, this is an algorithm called Atlas that my former student, Michael Bossa, uh, developed. And the uh, the green dots are the current laser scan. Behind the robot is a blue trail, which is the odometry of the robot. And that's actually referencing the odometry relative to the robot pose. And the, the uh, quality of this is a bit rough, but it, it's, uh, what's going on here is the robot's building multiple submaps. And it's trying to, it has a topological metrical representation, a collection of submaps that uh, are locally sort of metrically consistent, but chained together through uncertain transformations. And as the robot drives around, it, it has to solve some challenges. So locally, it, it matches scans sequentially to, to sort of do sort of local um, estimation. But then when it comes around a loop and it comes back to a place where it started through a different path, it, solving this loop closing problem is one of the challenges. How do you recognize that you're back where you were before? So this is an older example. And we're actually, what we're doing now is, is some of the same trajectories, just driving around our building, but trying to do it in full six degree of freedom with vision. And so indeed, and that's some of the work that we're collaborating with John on. So here's an example, slightly different uh, method, uh, a very different method, I guess, for um, processing it. This actually, we broke it into two different segments to show sort of what you would do for collaborative mapping. But here, a lot of times we use time as the vertical dimension. So there, and then these red lines are connecting more recent with older times when the robot's solving the loop closing problem. And this is just reprojecting the data onto the sort of ground plane to, to sort of show the, the map. And the building does sort of look like that. It's kind of a crazy building that we're in. So, uh, and in fact, so this uh, method called Atlas was one of our, our um, uh, sort of earlier SLAM techniques. And when I, just a small sideline about the sort of Irish connection, I, I came on an uh, SFI Walton Visitor Award in 2004-2005 uh, and got to work with Mauro, who's here, and Greg O'Hara's group at UCD. And I couldn't pull up the slides because it's a new laptop. They were on an older laptop at MIT. But at least I'll give you a, a slight flavor of what we did is uh, the, let's try this one. Uh, so I had, we had this idea we called Robot Soccer Anywhere. And what we wanted to do was to, um, 
have uh, part of the outreach of robotics, like I, I'm, I'm a huge RoboCup fan from a distance, but it would be great, I thought, well, what if you could just like show up at an elementary school and bring some robots and have the robots just sort of navigate around the building. And we had this idea, well, what if you could like sort of use the corridors and the classrooms as sort of like a playing field and some doorways and have the robot try to sort of play soccer and use, so this we had, uh, we built and actually built the, uh, sorry, that's pointer doesn't, we, um, we built some, so when I was here on sabbatical, built with Mauro some of these robots, had sick laser scanners and cameras on them. And here just showed connecting the Atlas SLAM algorithm with some of the behaviors from the UCD robot. And so we were able to basically sort of steer the robot around with the soccer ball, making a map. And, then, and so that sort of project we put on the side, but I still would love to go back to that someday in terms of having you know, robots like this that you could imagine taking to an elementary school and just turning the robots loose and having them play with very little a priori information. Uh, the technology is probably there where you could do that with some of the low-cost hardware. So, uh, all right, so I'll, I'll stop that and go back to my presentation. So, um, <clears throat> now, how do we attack SLAM? Well, the typical approach is what we call pose graph optimization. So, key, key challenge is how do you represent the environment? What's your representation? And the most successful representations recently would have sort of a chain of poses, and you uh, try to get constraints by matching, say, laser scanners or extract, laser scans or extracting points from visual imagery, uh, and then sort of feed all those constraints into an inference network. I had another student, um, Ed Olson, at MIT, who's now at Michigan, is, is doing very well. He won the Magic competition in Australia last year, first place. This is an example of reprocessing some data from, from MIT, from uh, Killian Court on the, the main part of the campus. And it gives you a flavor of of what uh, some of the issues are. In fact, this took two hours to take this data, just slowly driving a robot around about a foot per second. And the, uh, this, this, land, this feature here we call the infinite corridor. It's kind of overhead, it's only 220 meters long, but it's the long uh, corridor navigational landmark at MIT. And the robot navigates around these various loops and it's doing the sequential scan matching to estimate its trajectory, so kind of laser-based uh, odometry, you might call it. And there, it's uh, much better than the wheel encoder odometry, but still the error grows. With, and, and what the robot's trying to do is, uh, so this is doing the sequential scan matching, and then taking the, uh, um, by what you'll see that happens really fast is, Ed developed a really fast technique for applying the loop closure constraints and doing this uh, optimization of the entire set of poses really quickly. So this is uh, three or four years old now at least, but you can sort of see, uh, that the, the, the end result oops, is, and so once the <clears throat> um, constraints get applied, so up here, sort of processing time, remember this three or four years ago, you know, it's order of about four minutes to process the entire data set up until when the loop closure constraints are applied. And then what we always thought was the hard part, applying the loop closure constraints, it takes less than a second to optimize. So watch kind of now. And so it's really about optimizing those sort of pose graph networks. Now, if you wanted to look at the state of the art in SLAM today, we had a sequence of SLAM summer schools. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I was at the first two in Stockholm and in Toulouse. In fact, to France, we, built, we brought one of our UCD robots. I, t I had this sort of dream. I'm really obsessed with this problem, but I would love to just bring a robot in like the check baggage on an airplane, show up someplace, give a talk, send the robot out wandering around and have the robot come back at the end of the talk to show the map that it, it made. Kind of tried to do that, sort of did that in France. We, we, uh, I brought one of the UCD robots and we, and we built, we did some live map making just, just before I gave my talk and showed the results. Uh, that was all with, with Atlas. But then, so more recently, um, you know, so my opinion is that sort of these pose graph optimizations have shown the best performance uh, and it's sort of the state of the art. There, but there are these other questions. So how you do the loop closing. So um, you saw one of, the, one of the posters about the bag of words recognizing different robo-soccer players. So uh, for example, Paul Newman's group at Oxford has uh, done some great work on appearance-based loop closing and, and, and various other groups are using that. And so uh, I feel that there still are a lot of challenges to, to deal with and particularly trying to develop robots that are persistently autonomous. That, that as in the limit as time goes to infinity, that the robot gets better and better with time. A lot of the current systems, they're sort of doomed to fail with time. Just eventually they're gonna break. And, and you'd want something that can be resilient. I love the way those robots get themselves back up when they fall down. I think a lot of SLAM algorithms are sort of like the robots until they fall down, but they can't get back up. 
And so how do we build in that resilience and that sort of long-term capability? So uh, let's see. And then if, um, so I'll tell you just one application that we've looked on, um, this, um, say, relevant to the guys in, in Limerick. We've, we've done work on <clears throat> underwater inspection of complex 3D structures. Uh, the Navy and the Coast Guard in the U.S. have a problem with ship hulls that they want to make sure that, that they're um, safe, that they haven't had uh, objects placed along them. And so there's been an effort for a number of years uh, collaborating with a company called Bluefin, that was a, an MIT spin-off, to try to develop an inspection vehicle. Now underwater, of course, you have very, it's a bit like the RoboSocket, you have this very limited range. Uh, you can't see much. And you want to sort of splice together over time uh, a, a picture from very small field of view. So this vehicle, the Hovering Autonomous Underwater Vehicle, it's, um, it's a bit like a remotely operated vehicle, like a, like a sort of more, more typically used, but it has uh, a gimbaled imaging sonar. This is something called a Didson Dual Frequency Identification Sonar. Unfortunately, it's $85,000, but it's, uh, and it, and it produces pretty bad pictures, but it's better than the alternatives. And you have to look at a high angle of incidence on a surface to see it because of the physics, the way it, it likes to see things at a high angle of incidence. And then we have another sensor called a Doppler velocity log that we can measure our velocity relative to the hull. And so this vehicle sort of servos its sensors as it servos itself around the ship hull. And so we've integrated real-time uh, SLAM with this project in collaboration with Michael Kate, well, Ryan Eustace at Michigan is also involved doing it with Vision. And here's an older example from just a very, to sort of show you some of what's going on. Uh, actually, let me restart that video. So this is, um, <clears throat> you'll see a trajectory that sort of paints out with time. Now this vehicle has a ring laser gyroscope for its heading. So it <clears throat> its dead reckoning is actually quite good. It's, the drift is only order of a, a few meters for this limited example. <clears throat> and we put the vehicle in the Charles River. This is an example of the Didson imagery. And you can see there's actually a fish here. So if you watch carefully, a lot of, for humans, you can sort of see things from the shadows. So if you look carefully, there's, um, we're pleased to see fish in the Charles River. It doesn't have reputation as being very biologically compatible. But uh, see that, you can see the sort of fish swimming there. Uh, and uh, the vehicle is just, just doing a little patch of ground, sort of mow the lawn. And we like to sort of go one way and the other way to sort of stitch things together. And the, um, the video shows, uh, again, time as the vertical dimension. And when those uh, magenta vertical lines come in, that's when it's doing loop closing. So you can imagine a robot soccer thing where you tell the robot nothing in advance. Like imagine if you didn't even know the dimensions of the pitch and the robot shows up and it sort of drives around when it's doing its sort of pre-kickoff routine like the sort of warm-up exercises and it could actually just map out the area uh, and then um, and, and establish these sort of loop closure constraints, multiple views of the goal and sort of mesh it all together. So kind of what's going on there is the, uh, so here's a top-down view, it's probably very hard to see, of the dead reckon versus corrected path and so there's just sort of a slight drift and then here is uh, one with the time dimension. You can sort of see where the loop closures happen. And they happen by m s registering sonar, sonar images, basically reobserving the same features. So um, for example, has anyone saw in, uh, just the Irish Times article on Saturday morning that a shipwreck that's possibly from the Spanish Armada was discovered off the uh, coast of Donegal? Well, the man who found it is here. And uh, imagine if you went back with with a, a vehicle like this, and you can make a really precision map, like say before you started any excavation operations, and you could maybe do that one layer at a time and sort of really got, that, that's sort of one of the uses of this technology. What we've done more recently in this project, and I don't have any images in this talk, is we've gone into uh, inspecting the more complex parts of the ship, the running gear, the, the uh, propeller, and sort of done a complete ship with vision and, and, and sonar. We had a pretty successful demo uh, this, this past April and June on a couple of ships. So, all right, well, that's kind of the first part. Any questions on SLAM or any? We could save them for the end kind of thing. All right, so, so now I'm going to change gears and talk about the DARPA Urban Challenge. And the, uh, I'll just give a brief. So just sort of thinking retrospectively uh, on this, it's, uh, we had a huge team at MIT. And so I'm really grateful to my, my collaborators, uh, really, and, and in some ways as the team leader, like um, Tomas mentioned the sort of the strict roles of like, you know, the sort of, if you want to succeed in a competition, I really, I urge the strict 
roles, the MIT students wouldn't go for that. So they basically, it was like herding cats, you know, it was, and uh, so we, we had a very over ambitious sort of system design. It was kind of inevitable and it was part of but what we did. But um, we were actually, um, just to give you a little sample if you've not seen it, there was a US reality style TV show that followed 10 teams. We were one of the teams that they followed. And so let me, I'm going to turn the video on, the audio on. This is the world's toughest robot race. The U.S. government has challenged the civilian robotics community to create a car that can drive itself. This is just about the hardest thing you can do to a robot's vehicle. Despite the long odds of winning, more than 80 teams have jumped at the chance. The biggest challenge is dealing with the unexpected. That's our vehicle. That was our student. That wasn't our vehicle. <coughs> okay. So. So anyway, there's like three hours of footage there. It's quite a, quite a, a lot there. And I'll turn this off for a sec. And uh, the, um, so the DARPA Urban Challenge was uh, the third, as I mentioned. The goal was to go 60 miles in six hours. And they had two million for first place, one million for second place, half a million for third place, nothing for fourth place. Remember that. And, uh, <laughs> the, uh, and the goal is to have a safe vehicle that could do sort of some basic traffic maneuvers, you know, stop signs, intersections, merging, so forth. It was meant to be robust to block roads, um, other drivers behaving erratically, and at least from the initial program goals, they wanted to have systems where you could give very sparse waypoints and have the vehicle deal with GPS outages. So that's sort of in the initial contest description. And this last aspect is something that really drew us to the challenge because, you know, you don't, uh, this is the sort of thing that like it'll turn your life upside down for a year and a half and uh, you know, it's not like win at all costs and we just want to win. And we, we never really had the goal to win, but we wanted to sort of finish. And we, but we felt that we had a competitive advantage with sort of the SLAM technology to try to do the online mapping if we were in situations where there's no GPS. And it's pretty clear from the earlier DARPA challenge, like when Stanford won the $2 million prize for the second DARPA Grand Challenge, they pre-computed a trajectory through all this terrain. And some of it was sort of difficult mountainous terrain, but if you look at the paper on their controller, their vehicle had an average deviation of 30 centimeters from their prior trajectory. So essentially, and this is not like a, any criticism, they're amazing people, you know, they servoed a vehicle on a priori trajectory for 132 miles within 30 centimeters, except when the Carnegie Mellon robot broke down out in the middle of, you know, sort of a, a big desert road, they detected it, they drove around it, and they drove past it. But that was, that was sort of like, about 15 meters of autonomy for $2 million. That's a pretty good ratio. And uh, so, uh, and we didn't want to compete with that. If we, if it was just like following a, a blind, blindly following operator GPS waypoints, we knew other people were better at that. But, um, so the idea is you got a root network in the path, in, in advance that was per vaguely specified. And in particular, this part here is one of the sparse situations where there's a waypoint here and another waypoint here. And if the robot just drove between the two waypoints, it would drive through someone's house. And the, uh, but you got a root network like this 24 hours in advance, and you got a USB key five minutes before the mission. So, and so you needed a robust system that you could just plug in the USB key, transfer the, the, the mission. And the mission would have a sequence of waypoints that you had to hit and some speed limits on the, on the road segments between them and then just turn, turn your robot loose and let it go. So the, the, um, this is the, a close-up of that advanced navigation where it wouldn't necessarily tell you about the intersection and your robot had to deduce that. Uh, and the other thing that was quite challenging for most of the teams was dealing with traffic. So dealing with other robots, it's, uh, I'm sure the, a lot of the unexpected in Robocop comes from the interaction between the multiple robots. So you had to make left turns across traffic. Uh, you had to pull out. Has anyone here learned to drive? And, you know, maybe with your parent in the car of like, you know, whether it's safe to go or not safe to go, maybe I guess make it a right turn in this country. Uh, and uh, I dread the thought, my 10 year old, when, when we have to pull out the busy road near our house and go, Matthew, no, don't go, Matthew, go. <laughs> That's what it's a bit like. And so, um, but we had a big team. Part of this is, so we were fortunate that DARPA, DARPA were a little unfair, but they gave, they said, we'll give 10 teams a million dollars to compete. 
and the rest will give you nothing. So we competed to be one of the 10 teams, actually they made it 11, uh, and we got the, a million dollar grant for competing, but that alone wasn't enough. So we needed to sort of raise funds from, from different sponsors. Ford gave us a vehicle. Uh, Quanta Computer gave us two blade clusters. So the, the v you'll see in a second that we had a 40 core uh, processor in the back of the car. Uh, and the, uh, we also had a collaboration with an MIT. So um, uh, in computer, in CCL, where I'm from, a lot of people with like good Linux hacking skills and you know, liking to write everything from scratch. Aerostro brought some really advanced control capabilities, but a lot of MATLAB programming, for example. So we, so we had very much a student-run team, and, our, and our, we sort of, uh, a lot of our students were sort of thrown into the deep end in terms of you know, learning some advanced uh, programming. I had three wonderful co-PIs. So Dave Barrett, who's a professor at Olin College, a small undergraduate college near MIT, built the vehicle. John Howe did the planning and control with Emilio Fritzoli, his colleague, and then Seth Teller. Uh, did, led the perception effort, which I tried to contribute to. And so for us, let's see, I'll do one more video with sound. So <clears throat> why did we do it? Well, we, <clears throat> this is a little loud. It doesn't need to be that loud, but it, oops. If you watch as the car goes past, sorry. Sorry. The, um, <clears throat> I don't, didn't really need that sound, but just to show you the, the uh, just hearing that sound reminds me of the stress of this project. And, uh, uh, the, uh, so we, um, we were excited by this, uh, especially because we didn't know how to solve it. You know, if it was something that you sort of knew how to solve, that would seem that, well, it wouldn't be great for PhD students and things. But we've sort of that, that sort of challenge of not knowing really how to do it. And, uh, so the, the left video shows our system in operation and the final challenges. The right shows an, an example of the system running, uh, which I'll say a little bit more about how it works later, where you can see the, uh, we used uh, an RRT Plath Planner, a rapidly exploring random tree. So the vehicle has a, has a sort of short-term goal, and it's generating many potential paths randomly to get to the goal, uh, and it's choosing the best one online, uh, revising its decision, repeating the whole process 10 times a second. And in this, this sort of local map representation was one of the key things to make the system work. And in this, uh, red is forbidden, black is clear, white or shades of gray are varying levels of sort of distance from obstacles. Blue regions are forbidden to go through unless you can, you can't stop there, but you could have a path that could go through them. So that was, for example, going around passing cars and going across lanes. And <clears throat> we created a whole software architecture for, for data logging and, and, and uh, 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 communication between different processes, and it, it's uh, been quite powerful. We've, we've, we've used it in a number of other uh, projects lately. So let me show you a little bit. So for me, the uh, key challenge here is dealing with uncertainty, and it's some of the key questions are where's the road, where are the static obstacles, things like parked cars, where are the other vehicles, and what are their intentions? What are they going to do next? And my assessment then, and I would typically say my assessment now remains, although Google may be approving me wrong, is that sort of true urban driving was not really possible because of this issue of dealing with uncertainty. And in particular, if you don't know where the road is. I think if you don't have a, if you don't have a really precise prior map, it's actually very challenging if there's a car that's parked on the road and, and you think it's a parked car because you're in the lane and it's in the parking space, but if you're uncertain about your position, it might actually be that it's a car that's queuing at a traffic light or it's, it's sort of broken down in the road in front of you and you should queue behind it. And so we, uh, the approach we took was a spiral design strategy where we were sort of building a system to try to learn about this system and, and continually revising it right to the end, which was pretty stressful. And we also had this interdisciplinary team because you know, our Land Rover was, was, a, um, was over three tons and, and you, know, you have this vehicle going at you know, uh, 30 miles per hour sort of the top speed for this. And you know, the, to do... Uh, our computer scientists thought they could do everything, but in terms of like getting the dynamic controller really nailed, you know, I really wanted the Aeroastro sort of controls expertise and, and try to get that all working together. So our vehicle, our, so we built one vehicle, we, we rushed out and bought a Ford Escape as soon as we started the competition, just a, a lower cost platform, had it converted to drive-by-wire, and we planned from the start to throw that system away because we needed to get writing our software infrastructure. In parallel with that, we worked to get a Land Rover donated because Ford were a sponsor and they owned Land Rover at the time. And we, 
uh, in the end, we, so we got this blade cluster uh, donated it, 10 blades each with four cores. So, and it wasn't optimized for sort of low power use. So the, <clears throat> the blade cluster needed 3.5 kilowatts of power. And it also was made for some machine rooms. So we needed a two kilowatt generator on the roof to cool the blade cluster. So there was no way we could get the power for that off of the car engine. So we put in a six kilowatt RV genset, like made for like a big RV with like fridge and, and big screen TV. Uh, and we just had it sort of packed with electronics. The, um, we had a lot of sensors. So we, we wanted to have a sensor rich strategy, ideally robust to sensor failures. Uh, <clears throat> we had 12 of the SICK 2D laser scanners. In various, we had five cameras. We did more vision than most other teams. Uh, and we had uh, 15 ra automotive radars arrayed around the vehicle, kind of like an old-fashioned sonar ring. And the Velodyne laser scanner on the top was a very difficult decision because it's, as I said, it's a $75,000 sensor. They developed it for this competition and the initial prototypes weren't very good. So Georgia Tech bought one, they sent it back, they said it's hopeless. It took a while of persuading and fundraising, but I, we decided to buy one of them and uh, we didn't have a spare and it, and it worked uh, It was very well. It was a great sensor for us. So, the, the, um, so I'll say a little bit about our system architecture. We roughly had the planning side and the perception side with this local map having them sort of talk to one another. So on the, on the perception side, the highest level navigator tries to figure out where's the next uh, destination in the route map and how do I get there, so sort of intermediate sub-goals. And we did that with, uh, with, a, with a sort of a D-star search algorithm. The navigator also thought about some traffic rules. So for example, at a stop sign, if it's not your turn to go, when you have to sort of pause and wait for someone else. And uh, <clears throat> the, but the navigator fed a sort of short-term motion goal into the motion planner, which as I mentioned, used a rapidly exploring random tree. And our RT path planner, so it's kind of like our computation guys demanded this extreme processor with 40 cores. Our vehicle design engineers wanted this extreme vehicle, like a Land Rover or just something a little more. And our motion planning guys wanted an extreme motion planning algorithm. And the variant of the RRT that we used is a, a novel variant where we, we do a full kinematic, a full dynamic simulation of the vehicle in the loop. So we predict paths and then run a simulation forward of the vehicle's motion in each path. And that helped ensure safety, of, if, if, if the, assuming the model was good, that we could really predict where the vehicle would go. It did actually lead to some unpredictable behavior. And so most of the other teams had one planner for parking lots, one planner for driving on the highway, one planner for um, you know, sort of uh, other sort of zone situations where there were no you know, open areas. They thought we were a little crazy to just have one planner for all purposes. But for our planning people, they said that showed the power of this motion planning algorithm was to have one planner for all things. And actually, one of the things I had to deal with in terms of the friction in the team, the whole team dynamics thing, is that the planner would sometimes do really crazy things. So like you think it's just pulling right into a spot, and it would just make like a complete unnecessary loop. And, uh, and this drove the computer scientists crazy. Like the student, they're like, there's got to be a bug. There's got to be a bug. There's got to be a bug. And the other people saying, there's no bug. There's no bug. There's no bug. And it turns out now, three years later, so Amelia Frizzoli, my colleague who works in motion planning, so the RRT path planning algorithm was never meant to be, was never proven to be optimal. And it's actually a shortcoming that it, it does not find optimal paths. And based on the insights from this project and a subsequent project that automated an autonomous forklift, which was a little more dangerous when it did these things, they had a real serious think about you know, random graph theory and, and they modified the RRT path planner to create something called RRT star, which is provably optimal and it eliminates the crazy motions. And so, so what was always thought to be a bug and the poor programming capabilities of the MATLAB guys was really a fundamental algorithmic defect of Steve Laval's RRT path planner, which Amelia Frizzoli has subsequently now fixed to have a provably correct, like provably optimal with asymptotically motion planning algorithm. So that's one example of like by participating in the competition and trying to use some state-of-the-art algorithms, you actually learned about them and generated good, good research. So, um, and then, anyway, that, the art planner fit into a, a low-level vehicle controller, something called a pure pursuit controller, uh, which worked quite well for us. And on the other side, the, uh, <clears throat> on the perception side, we had all these sensors feeding into algorithms to detect obstacles and hazards like curbs and, and uh, uh, bumps in the road, and, and then lane finding. And we <clears throat> the perception data populated a local map 
So we used a local state representation. We published an ICRA paper on it. I think other folks use it as well. But it's the, the, uh, the idea is to, um, if you render all your data in a global reference frame, relying on, say, GPS, then your GPS uncertainty is going to corrupt your local map data. And you're going to have sort of fake artifacts or sort of jumpiness and things. Instead, we have a locally smooth representation that sort of goes based on more the dead reckoning of the vehicle. And we render the data locally in this local frame. And we know that it's going to drift with time. But for the purposes of planning paths and avoiding obstacles locally, if, every, if the perception data is in this local frame, it, it can work quite well. And so that's another sort of novel aspect of our system. The, um, and we wrote lots of new software. Our students insisted on throwing out everything else, the pre-existing that we proposed. And so created something called LCM, which uh, lightweight communications and marshalling, which John is using, for example. And uh, uh, that's available on Google Code uh, and various sorts of things. We also made all our race data, so like 250 gigabytes of, of data available online from the final race competition. Uh, let's see. So the <clears throat> so just going one level deeper, just briefly, that some of the major subsystems, you know, we uh, sort of expanding on the perception side. We had cameras would detect sort of potential like lane markings, road paint, uh, and then also the the sick data, the Velodyne, would, and the and the sick scanners would detect curbs, and that fed into a lane finding or road finding algorithm. We used radars to detect other vehicles at long range and laser scanners to detect vehicles at shorter range. And then we had an, an Aplanix IMU GPS system providing the local vehicle trajectory. And let me tell you a little bit about the Velodyne. It's uh, quite an amazing sensor. So it has 64 lasers, and they rotate around together. And it gives you a million data points per second. So an example of Velodyne data. This is just for. <clears throat> driving along Mass Ave in Cambridge up towards Harvard from MIT. So there's a bus. Uh, you can see some people walking, uh, you know, buildings that's false colored by height. And so the human eye, it's sort of, you look at this data and say, wow, that's a great sensor. Uh, but in practice, to process this, you know, a million data points a second in real time, it's still quite challenging to detect, uh, to detect objects, in particular dealing with the aperture problem for vehicles. So there's one of the posters about tracking vehicles. You know, if you see first the back and the side of the car, and then you only see the side of the car, then you see the back and the front, how do you sort of infer that you're seeing different parts of the, it's sort of a fundamental issue in, you know, in, in visual motion estimation. So our, our vehicle tracking could have been a little better. So we would detect obstacles by extracting a ground plane and then clustering together uh, returns and, and then trying to track them over time. We did a lot of tracking other vehicles, um, and uh, just briefly, we had both laser and sonar-based estimation. This is uh, for a situation, uh, I'll show you in a minute, uh, one of the qualifying events uh, where we had multiple circling cars and you had to make left turns across traffic. For, for lane estimation, we had <coughs> the, um, so Albert Wang was a PhD student of uh, Seth Teller, just an, an amazingly gifted coder. Uh, he's uh, and he, here's a testing the sparse waypoint thing, which we thought was like our competitive edge. Uh, we had two waypoints 150 meters apart uh, with a prior map connecting a straight line. This was in a, some off-site testing in California a few weeks before the competition. And what the vehicle did in, in real time was to infer the lane markings and use it to follow the path of the vehicle. So in the end, DARPA didn't give us much of this sparse waypoint thing. And, and, and so a lot of this was not, not necessary. But it, it turned into some good, uh, good research. All right, so I mentioned the local grid map. So uh, these sort of were, um, <clears throat> gave the cost function to the motion planner. The uh, RRT path planner that I mentioned uh, would um, using the RRT. Uh, and it was, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's really, uh, uh, was challenging to implement. But I think in the end, it was worth it. So at the end of the day, we were, uh, we were one of 35 teams to go to the national qualifying event. They had a sequence of events that you had to pass there, uh, including like navigating in traffic, doing a long distance run uh, of several miles, and then dealing with stop signs and, and road blockages. And this is the director of DARPA, Tony Tether. He just sort of, in the end, decided up or down who got through, who didn't. Uh, we were one of 11 teams. DARPA wanted to have 20 teams for the final race. Because of the various crashes and things that happened during the qualifying event, they reduced that to 10 teams. Then one team appealed, and they got in. They made it 11. Uh, for me, I was mostly obsessed with like, just trying to keep our team together and uh, getting everything working. But 
Uh, the other robots there, it's a bit like a Woodstock of robotics, you know, like, like some of the front runners, Carnegie Mellon, Stanford, uh, this uh, military truck team, Oshkosh, had this huge, dangerously looking vehicle. Uh, some other teams, but really great researchers, so like Georgia Tech, Henry Christensen is a real leader of the international robotics community. They had a computer glitch and the vehicle crashed during qualifying, they were out. Uh, UPenn, they actually finished the race, they did a great job. Their vehicle is com nearly completely programmed in MATLAB. And uh, just, just amazing. So uh, what I'll do is I'll, um, so some of the qualifying things we had to do were to navigate around this route network where there were some sparse waypoints. And we did navigate this the first time through completely cleanly. Uh, but uh, I, and I, I, won't go, I won't show too much of that for time. We had to do things like uh, park in parking lots with parked cars. And we had to drive along what they called the gauntlet, which was this curved road segment with 13 parked cars on the side of the road. And because we were estimating the, the lane, trying to follow the lanes, it was pretty challenging. Our vehicle would kind of get stuck. It would be confused. It was sort of, there's not a safe path. As the vehicle waited, we would relax the tolerances on the, the willingness to get close to obstacles, and, and then usually it would unstuck itself and, and start going. So here's, here's an example, the, the RT path planner pulling into this parking spot. <clears throat> For the final race, so DARPA really wanted a success. They invited all this world media and attention, and they, it was kind of like the, the bar was initially here, and they lowered the bar to what they thought would get a winner. And, uh, so they got rid of all the parked cars. They got rid of all the road blockages. They simplified the final race a lot. Uh, let me just, so what's, I mean, this is an alternative. This is not, not to criticize my Stanford CMU colleagues. They're amazing guys. But their, their alternative was to take a Google satellite image and take the sparse waypoints and interpolate and give the vehicle very precise waypoints. And so then that removes the uncertainty of where's the road problem and you can just sort of servo the car around. And so there's a much stronger reliance on the prior map being right, which indeed Google are doing now. Um, of the other, this, this qualifying event is kind of interesting, so I'll, I'll show you. This is, uh, <clears throat> oops. So this is the vehicle trying to learn how to, uh, to do the left turn across traffic. So think right turn in Ireland. So there's six cars going one way, six cars going the other way with some gaps. And the gaps were either seven seconds or 13 seconds. We didn't know that in advance. And you got penalized if you didn't take the 13 second gap. So it's sort of like, do you have enough time to go? And the first time we did it, we, we made our system overcautious. And in 24 minutes, we only made seven turns, seven laps. The next time we made it more aggressive and we passed by doing 10 laps in 12 minutes. But what you'll see in a minute is the vehicle sort of getting up the courage to, 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 to go. This is my colleague John Howe commentating on the, his audio. We were nervously watching from this vantage point. Okay. Yeah, uh, there were, yeah, I should have mentioned that. So DARPA hired 50 stunt car drivers in these Tauruses with roll car to drive around the robots. And uh, so, so this other one was they, they had a, um, road blockage, which we actually never really handled quite properly, uh, and stop signs. Turns out stop signs were one of the easiest things to do. So, That's just taking its turn at a stop sign. Um, let's see. So for the final event, the sort of 60 mile <coughs> race, the, uh, they cut it to 11 teams. We were one of the 11 teams. They made it a lot, similar, a lot simpler. So DARPA had actually planned, I think somewhere over here, to put a completely new road into the, they had actually sort of front end loaders and things ready to make a new road that wouldn't be in the Google image. But based on wanting to have a winner, and the team's not doing so well in qualifying, they took that out. So they just basically made it a lot simpler. And the, uh, 
But having multiple robots did make it for some inter interesting interactions. And so uh, the, this just gives a short, go, uh, we started a few minutes late, so I'll just go a little over. This is just a little sample of the course. That's that was Mike Montemirlo. He's one of the key guys of the Google team, along with Chris Ermson, who was, that's Chris Ermson. So, so what Sebastian Thrun, who's a real visionary, did is he hired the very best DARPA challenge engineers, took them to Google, swore them to secrecy for two years to develop the cars. So this is showing Stanford editing their prior map. That's Sebastian. So if you watch it, this, there's sort of, you can just sort of tweak the road to match the map. You take away a lot of the uncertainty. Okay, okay. So that's, so at the end of the day, how, how do we do? So uh, six teams finished. We were one of the six. Carnegie Mellon came in first, Stanford second, Virginia Tech third. We came in fourth. Um, but we did actually, um, that was our goal, was to finish. And, and we did have a few mishaps that DARPA let us, let the vehicle continue. So you could argue, you know, did we really, at the end of the, only Carnegie Mellon and Stanford cleanly ran the entire course. I, I don't know if you noticed the dirt road in one of the videos, so there was this dirt road going downhill. We didn't really expect that, because that was sort of more like the first DARPA challenge, but the way DARPA made their, they wanted a high speed road segment, there was no connection to that, so they just made a new dirt road. Uh, one, several of the robots, so there was a, a, a German robot, Carollo, uh, drove off course on the dirt road, and when that happened, uh, the DARPA director got kind of uh, angry because he wanted it to be simpler. So they had these prearranged, orchestrated, you, you got three different missions, three different USB keys, about 20 miles of, of driving each. And he had them in the middle of the race change all the route networks so that no robots would have to go down the dirt road anymore because he was afraid they were all going to fail. And so, for example, UPenn got stuck at the bottom of the dirt road indefinitely, and DARPA let them go restart the car. But in the confusion of changing the USB keys, they never f changed the MIT keys. So we actually did the dirt road four times and went 60 miles where the other teams didn't go as far and th their, their routes were never changed. So the whole thing of scoring and placing and timing, but I mean, Simeon were clear winners and Stanford were probably within a half hour, Virginia Tech another hour, and we were at least, we were like another hour later. So it was, it, we, we were nowhere near being in the top three. I don't mean to imply we were, but we did have some extra sort of challenges thrown at us. Um, but we were pleased to do that. And the, uh, where we got in trouble was due to this sort of strategy of not knowing where the road was. We had um, just classifying is something an obstacle or is it a car is actually quite difficult. So for our system with all our various baked in assumptions, Slowly moving obstacles were hard to distinguish from a stationary obstacle that was just, you were seeing it from different vantage points. So Ed Olson uh, coded in a threshold, so I think of two and a half meters per second, that anything slower than two and a half meters per second was considered stationary, which is not necessarily a good thing to do. Uh, so, um, and, uh, so, so we were in a couple accidents. So, so, so well, first let me say some positives, and I'll finish in, in, in two minutes or less. So we got some great papers. This doesn't even have the RT star, the optimal motion planning algorithm that came out of the failures of our, of our system. But it helped me sort of solidify my belief that dealing with changes in the environment, coping with dynamic environments is really a key issue. Uh, and, and interacting with other robots. And, uh, and ultimately, you'd like a robot car that could interact with people. So what happens if you're at a stop sign, you arrive at the same time as someone else, you sort of nod at them, give them a wave. What, what happens if there's no driver in the other car? You know? uh, but uh, we had a great team, lots of fun, lots of challenges. Um, so here's the, uh, we, we were involved in a few collisions. So this one uh, <clears throat> was with Carollo, which I guess is the University of Brunswick, and uh, who have their own autonomous driving effort. And so what's going on here is a little hard to understand, but this give, they give you some examples of our system in operation. So I'll show you this accident and the Cornell accident, and then I'll stop. So uh, here's our car. Every car had a chase driver. So one of these stunt drivers, they were real like NASCAR type stunt drivers in, in, a, in a chase car with an emergency stop so they could stop a vehicle uh, if any trouble. This is Carollo, and this is Carollo's chase car driver. So there's the chase car of Carollo and Carollo. And they had these zones where you had to sort of go in one thing and out the other. In the zones, there's no left-right rules of the road. 
and you had, you know, I think you, uh, in the qualifiers you had to go through this middle ring. I think here you just had to go in and back out. So we're trying to get to here, and we're planning a path with the ROT to get there. If there's a red circle, that's showing the, the pure pursuit controller basically would define a radius around the vehicle which varied on your speed, so further away if you're going faster, closer if you're going slower. Where that radius intersects the path, that's the short-term goal of a linear controller to drive the vehicle. When this turns white, it means emergency stop. So the vehicle is trying to just stop as quickly as possible, and it's a little too late here. So these, these sort of gray areas around each obstacle is sort of the forbidden zone. Now, if we knew something was a car, we wouldn't just say don't hit it, but we would put a forbidden region in front of it, like one car length and several car lengths behind it. But for this case, uh, the, the robots were going just slow enough that we weren't calling them cars. So, so uh, you can see the video up front. So we had three cameras, forward and then left and right. And as, you, uh, as we go in, and why it reset itself. So we're trying to get to here. We're initially going to go around to the, uh, to the left. And as we get closer, Carollo had these laser scanners sticking out the sides. And so we're trying to put the brakes on. And uh, we, we hit the, one of these scanners and bent it. Now, the, um, <clears throat> so they, they interviewed the chase car drivers. And this was the third strike. So Carollo had earlier driven off the dirt road and then and causing them to change the whole course plan and then they also they cut us off they made a left turn in front of us and they had to get stopped at the last minute so they said sort of three strikes and you're out but they wasn't really fair to them they weren't very happy they let us continue all right the next accident happened in a very uh public kind of place and in fact oh, i forgot to queue up this video let's see if it's oh it's not there um well i have a nice video for that but i won't show it so Near the start, no one saw that. That was all hidden off in the course, and we only figured out afterwards what really happened. But this was in a very visible part of the course near the start-finish line. And even though the road looks very big here, in the prior map, they wanted everyone to get in one lane for going to the start-finish area where they'd get new missions. And so we were following Cornell. This is much later in the race. The so five robots had already crashed out by this point, and uh, DARPA wanted the six remaining to finish. Uh, so they had a problem with their actuator or their throttle on their, on their accelerator. And Cornell were, we were trying to pass them for about a whole minute and a half. And so they were going stopping, starting, stopping, starting, even going backwards. So the vehicle just really went a bit haywire. So you can see some of the limitations of our system. So the Cornell are stopped here. A human driver would just drive around them, no big deal. But the prior map said you had to be in this lane here. So we're behind them. And you know we weren't using vision to recognize, OK, there's license plate, taillights, big number. That must be a vehicle. Be careful. We just saw it as a big blob, OK? So we're planning paths around here, and the ROT path planner can just find a path around the front. Now, as we pull around the side, you'll see this sort of get painted out, but we still had a path. And then they start moving at exactly the wrong moment, and we tried to stop, and it was too late. And there's a great commentary, because this was all on the webcast, but I don't have that one queued up. So if you see here, they start moving now. And we had a little fender bender. But DARPA came and they let us uh, continue. <coughs> so uh, anyway, and uh, yeah, is it, is, it, is it indicate mirror maneuver or mirror indicate maneuver? <coughs> so in the US, it's indicate mirror maneuver. And here, it's mirror indicate. Anyway, so uh, that's, that's pretty much it. So, uh, but some, some, um, so I'll stop the talk there, answer any questions. Um, okay, thanks very much, John. So uh, I think we have time for some questions, but about four minutes. Okay. So for any Irish drivers, you can't ask, what does it mean, take your turn at the stop sign? <laughs> um, yeah, for me, the big difference between this and, and, and RoboCup, besides some scientific stuff, is you can die from it, right? I mean, <laughs> how do you ensure safety during development? I think that's a huge issue. So we, um, we went to great difficulty to secure like a former naval air base that was being closed down, some, some place to, to test. And it was very expensive. It, like, they gave us free use for most of the year. But if we really needed it and had to book it, it was like $10,000 for two days of testing. And so. Uh, some of the other teams, not mentioning any names, that apparently they were doing routine driving on California roads 
uh, without telling people even during the DARPA challenge. And so the idea is if you have a safety driver ready to take the wheel and you have a robust system, but there are certain situations like high-speed passing where it's just, if you haven't seen it, look up the TED talk, the TED TED talk of Sebastian Throne, and you see, for example, they're on a mountain road and a big dump truck comes around the corner and, you know, if their system made a mistake, I, I don't know, it's uh, iffy. But I, I think that my vision for the autonomous driving, I'm a little skeptical of the fully autonomous car where, like, so, so let me just, as a little caveat, so, so here's a question, like, after the Google article came out, uh, I was contacted by some media people. So, for example, a new scientist had an article, what will you do in a driverless car? And the, uh, it's just a short sort of piece, but it basically says, you know, uh, if you, um, the idea is that the, the car will become the fourth screen after the television, the computer, desktop, and, the, and your mobile. And that you could, you know, if, Google say it's about saving lives, but you could make a lot of money if you could control someone's desktop and advertise to them and let them surf the web when, they, when they're stuck in traffic. But I, I kind of feel that we need to do the saving lives part first and many, many years from now maybe consider this. And so in the, in the context of that, I think that um, the, the best way is if it's a blend of the human and the robot such that, which kind of you already have now, it's sort of, you know, anti-lock brakes and, and, and electronic stability control, where the person doesn't really know that the computer's taking over, and the computer only takes over when the person can't really do it, be when it can do better. So, but I don't, it, safety is a huge issue, the short version. A little add-on. Um, I know uh, that Mercedes, for instance, they um, they do assistive braking. So if they if they see, so they have radar in the front of the car, and if there's a car on the road, even in fog or something, and you're braking, but you're not braking enough, the car will actually take over and will do the proper brake. Uh, but it'll doze the brake as also so that you stop just in time, so you don't brake too much, but you certainly don't brake too little, as a human often would do. Just as an example, and that's where the, where the computer and the car takes over. Right. Yeah, so there's all sorts of technology now coming in cars, and we're, we're working with Ford, and, and so we just actually got a new vehicle, a Ford Explorer at MIT, that has adaptive cruise control, crash mitigation by braking, lane keeping assist, and uh, it's quite a little dizzying in terms of what's in there, but you have to, they never want to, they need to be in a position where it's always the driver's decision, that they, they can't be liable if there's an accident. Sorry, I just have a minor technical question yeah. about the the sensors, the Velodyne the 3D scans, sensor, yeah. what, what do the other laser sensors give that it doesn't? Okay, well the other laser scans, some are horizontal and some are angled, and to be honest, um, <coughs> the history is that, you know, some of our team were very strong-willed and they didn't want the Velodyne. They just said we can do it with 2D, uh, and I just felt very strongly we wanted the Velodyne. And so we, we probably could have gotten rid of nearly all of the 2D laser scanners and just, it doesn't have perfect coverage, it sort of doesn't see things that are really close. Uh, but in, in the end, we, we, uh, there were certain things that the, the, the angled ones could do, for example, picking up curbs. Because the Velodyne data is quite noisy. There's so many data points your eye sort of interpolates, but it's actually quite challenging to detect curbs with it. So in a sense, we had these push broom sensors to help us detect curbs, and the skirt sensors, we called them, helped detect close obstacles. Uh, so, John, a general question, I guess, if you have any thoughts between the passive and the active sensors. So, I guess, from right. Thomas's talk this morning, one of the things you pick up is the active sensors, the sonars, have lots of hassles yeah. because they interfere with one another. Right. And also, I guess, in general, general, you would expect active sensors to have lower range than passive. Yeah, I think that... I, I did my PhD thesis with sonar, like the Polaroid sonars, and they're very problematic and error-prone, and most people don't want to have to deal with the hassles of them, and the interference is an issue. But in my underwater universe, I really love sonar because of the, the sort of dolphin analogy, and I, I think that if used properly, you can use them, say, say but, but uh, I mean, my, my expectation is this will have a connect on it soon, right? I mean, if you, or could you, because um, the, the connect, I think, is kind of game-changing, it's $150, and it's sort of a hybrid. You get vision, but you also rely on both, so... Just on your, the first half of your presentation, when you were stitching together uh, views of uh, something that you'd seen already, so you, you come back along one corridor and you're in the same part of the building again, uh, how do you deal with, let's say someone had moved something, I don't know, like a bicycle, what happens in that situation? Uh, do so, you so if the change is small enough, it's generally robust to that. 
for the scan matching because you're not going to ever get a complete match. You might not be in exactly the same situation. But I had a student just finish her PhD on exactly that issue of dynamic mapping, of how you detect change and try to edit your map to detect to do it. And so, so I think what you need to do is to sort of have a dynamic pose graph where you, you like a database, where you sort of do transactions with it. You remove things and add them back in. And, and that's one of the challenges to try to do that like with vision in full 3D is, is, is something we're trying to do actively now. So it's not an easy issue, I think. Okay, so uh, if there are any no other questions, I think we'll just thank John again and uh, thanks. For <laughs>